Once again, apologies for ruining your conversations. Hope I didn't destroy in the middle of a wonderful lunch invitation. If, it, if you're halfway through inviting someone for lunch, uh, continue to do so afterwards. Uh, my name's Steve Adams. I'm the pastor here at Eastgate Bible Church. Getting close-ish to three years. Um, and, yeah, we're planning to be around for the long haul. Um, just yesterday we signed a, a contract on a house in Westbrook. Um, a house which is um, planning for a long-term future of staying around in the area. Um, so, yeah, we're really looking forward to a um, long-term journey here at Eastgate. Uh, we've been going through the book of First Thessalonians. When I say we've been going through the book of First Thessalonians, we've done one sermon so far, and then there's been a five-week gap. Um, but we will go through the whole book um, of First Thessalonians, and this is where we're up to this morning. Okay, let's open up in prayer, because... I'm not here in my skills and my abilities. Uh, we are desperately independent upon God for this to be a beneficial time for all of us. Heavenly Father, I pray as we look to your word that your word would speak clearly, uh, that you would allow me to speak clearly. But Lord, I pray most of all that your good purposes And the very reasons why you gave us these scriptures might not only be taught, but received and applied in all of our lives. Lord, all of your word is good for our instruction and for building up that we might be complete and equipped for every good work. So Lord, I ask you to help me and I ask you to help all of us that we would hear receive and respond in a way that is honouring to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now if there's one thing that newspapers and television love to get hold of is when a Christian leader fails with regards to integrity. If it was in the workplace, the business environment, it's not so much of a big issue, but if it's a Christian leader, then that is a major Headline, and rightly so, you should hold, expect more from Christian leaders, whether it be a matter of handling of finances, misuse, or, or whatever it be, whether it's got something to do with deceptive or some false teaching, whether it's got something to do with manipulative leaders, or whether it's a significant moral failure, where any of these things happen It is front and forward in the news trying to communicate to the world that, look, these Christians aren't all they're cracked up to be. Sadly, if I was asked you to think about the last 20 years, if you could think of anyone who came under those categories, probably you all, you could think of someone, not without much difficulty at all. But on the other hand, it's also not uncommon for Christian leaders with great integrity, with faithful ministries, still to be maligned. Last week we had a a missionary family sharing not only in our service but in our community groups throughout the week and they can bear witness to the fact that in their ministry there are people who are opposed to their gospel work where they are working and as a result are saying harmful things about them as people and the work that they do. Now we shouldn't be overly surprised by that We're told in Romans 8 verse 7 that the natural mind is hostile to the things of God. 
But as we're all called to be ambassadors of Christ, it's important that we represent him well. It's important that not only that we say and do the right things publicly, but that we live lives of integrity. When you're reading through Peter's letters, you often hear him say things like, live such good lives that when they slander you, they might be brought to shame because they have to bring up false accusations or that they might slander you for things that are actually good. Now, we don't know specifically the things that are being said against Paul and Silas in their ministry in in Thessalonica. But as you read through chapter 2, verses 1 to 8, you can start to parcel and put together some assumptions about the things that are being said against them. Now, as I said, this has been a massive break, probably the longest break I've ever done in a preaching series, have a five-week gap in the middle between two weeks of holidays and a couple of weeks of visiting speakers. So we probably all benefit from a little recap of what we covered in chapter 1. The church in Thessalonica was a church established by the Apostle Paul on his second missionary journey. Uh, We read about it in Acts chapter 17, how it was his practice. He would begin in the synagogues declaring that Jesus is the Christ. And we saw that many Jews, many Gentiles and many prominent women came to saving faith in Jesus Christ through that time. But just like Philippi beforehand, where they'd been stripped and beaten because of their sharing of the gospel, they weren't received well in Thessalonica either. Matter of fact, as people brought their charges against them, one of the claims they made was, these men have turned the world upside down, which I would actually take as a compliment. But because of the persecution, the Christians had to silently and quietly help Paul and Silas move out of the area. And this is a letter that Paul is writing to that church um, two years later. So we see insights into a church that is pretty new and the things which Paul is writing to instruct them. Beginning, he speaks about giving thanks for their faith, love and hope. Not just for them being nice Christian virtues, but as a way of speaking about their faith, love and hope and the genuineness of them that resulted in good works, that resulted in endurance of faith. And he makes a statement that often we're reluctant to make. He says, I am confident or I know without doubt that you guys have been called by God. There is undeniable evidence of the miraculous work of God to bring you out from where you were, from worshipping idols to worshipping the true and living God. And because Thessalonica was a major port, when there's changes in town, lots of people noticed. And what we read there is that their world really had been turned upside down. They were changed completely from living one way to living another. As people had passed through Thessalonica, Paul says this in verse 8 of chapter 1, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Archaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Like without even Paul needing to promote and say, have you seen what's happening back in Thessalonica? Word isn't spreading. People are noticing something is happening here. These guys have turned around. And not only are generally people talking, we also read that other churches in the areas are looking at the Thessalonians as an example of what it means to respond and live in light of the gospel. Now, there's part of us that could think, 
Man, what a wonderful thing that's going on there. Surely nobody could say anything negative. But they do. And if you were to reconstruct from the things that Paul says in these verses what things might have been said against Paul, it seems that what is being said about him is that Paul and Silas really had nothing to say at all. They were just a manipulative people who were greedy, going for self-gain and deceiving these people. That was effectively what was being said against them. But when you look to Paul's defence, he doesn't just build arguments as say, of no, I wasn't. He consistently appeals, you know. Remember, think yourself of what we were like and you weigh up the claims for yourself. He even calls in God who judges the heart to be a judge on these matters. It's a wonderful passage for anyone in ministry, this passage. And before you think, oh, great. It's a passage about people in ministry. I need a good kip. I'm not in ministry, so I can knock out. Well, let me inform you that the Bible doesn't speak about ministry as being something that certain people in the church do. All of us are ministers. So I'm afraid if you need a kip, you can do it uh, later after the service. Uh, We've been working through a book with the elders. One of the things that highlighted in the Bible, that term minister, not a single time is used to refer to individuals who do all of the ministry to the Christians who attend a church. The Bible uses that term as those of the responsibility of all Christians. So Paul speaks about a God-approved ministry, and we're going to look at it as this. A ministry of substance with a godly appeal, a godly approach, and that is servant-hearted. Starting with a ministry of substance. One of the things I need to point out before we start chapter 2 is that God did not put in verses and chapters in the Bible. They are not inspired. And one of the problems that can happen is when you see a new chapter begin, you think, this is a whole new bit. But remember, Paul is writing one letter to the Thessalonians, which is one letter from start to finish. It wasn't until the 13th century that chapters were put into the Bible, and it wasn't until the 16th chapter that verses were put into the Bible. And the reason why they were put in there, it makes it much easier, particularly in a big book, to refer to particular content within it. And I'll say that because I don't want you to think that chapter 2 is starting a whole new idea. It flows on very naturally and expands upon things that have been spoken about in the first chapter. Like in verse 5 of the first chapter, it says, You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Like right at the beginning it says, We know there's things being said about us. You know what we were like. And now he sort of expands upon what that is all about. He repeats that phrase, you know, as you know, I call God to be witness to remind them that you know these things not to be true. But Paul's not just defending his approach to ministry. It seems the first accusation he addresses is that that Paul came in vain. Or literally it says, Paul came with emptiness. Paul came with nothingness. It appears the claim was that whatever Paul and Silas did, there was no substance to it whatsoever. They were just empty words and they manipulated people into believing things. But the thing is, what we've seen is that people all around the world are talking about these Thessalonians. 
Their world had been turned upside down. They had been radically transformed from serving idols to living the true and living God in such a way that everyone was taking notice. And what brought about that change wasn't a method of ministry. It wasn't about a style or a manipulative method. It was based upon a substance. What Paul specifically speaks about, he says, we spoke to you the gospel of God. We spoke to you the good news of God, a good news which isn't even their own teaching, a good news which has its origin in God about what God has done to send Jesus into the world to pay the penalty for our sin on our behalf. That he was God's promised Messiah, that by faith in him we can have forgiveness of sins, a relationship with him. We can receive his Holy Spirit and a guaranteed future eternal inheritance with him. That this Jesus who died was not left die, but he is raised on the third day and is seated at the right hand of the Father. This was the substance. This is what Paul calls in Romans 1.16, the power of God for salvation for many. And we see it, that power of God in the life of the Thessalonians. They had been radically transformed. Paul and Silas hadn't come with emptiness or with a teaching of their own. They had come with the power of God, the message of God's gospel. There's nothing self-seeking in doing that. When you go through the book of Acts, you see that before they went to Thessalonica, they were in Philippi. And for sharing this gospel, they were stripped and beaten. When they came to Thessalonica, they weren't received well. They had to leave the area. There was persecution. There's nothing self-seeking to be gained from it. But not only was the content of the gospel not empty, neither was the effect of the gospel. As it radically transformed and people could see these changes in the life of the Thessalonians. So the first point of a God-approved ministry is that God's gospel is necessary. And I think that's a healthy starting point any time you think about mission or ministry. At the very heartbeat of God's mission is God's gospel. To call something mission or to call something ministry that is void of God's gospel is not mission and is not ministry. Now, I want to be careful what I say here. I, as you know, I'm all for building relationships. I'm all for doing good things for social benefit. But if the gospel is not communicated through those things, that is not a gospel ministry, that is not gospel mission. It's something that anybody can do. That doesn't mean that you must present the gospel at the very first encounter in each of those things. Often there's a wonderful case for building a relationship with people. And I don't even mean building a relationship with people just because you've got an agenda and you want to bring the gospel in. But because we should deeply love a people who are made in the image of God. Not with an agenda. And because we deeply love a people because they're made in the image of God, 
then if we do deeply love them, that love should be expressed in sharing with the good news with them which they most desperately need and is the best news possible for them. Eastgate will never have a gospelless ministry. So Paul addressed the substantial content and transformation. Now he talks about the nature of a godly appeal. When you read through Paul's defence, he seems to have a structure of saying, this is what we didn't do, but this is what we did do. Regarding their appeal, it says it wasn't with error, it wasn't based on false teaching. After all, it was God's gospel, it wasn't Paul's gospel. It wasn't with impurity, it wasn't with deception. But they spoke as men approved by God, declaring his gospel faithfully, based on the motive to bring pleasure to him who sees and searches the heart of Paul. Often in Paul's writing, when he speaks about the Christian life, he talks about putting off certain things and putting on certain things. And when he speaks about ministry, it's right that we see that same thing put into context, that we need to put off underhanded deceptive means and we must declare faithfully the good news of the gospel. If you're just doing one, you will never have a God-honouring ministry. If you just have true content, but you use evil, worldly, deceptive means, you're going to discredit your content. If you just have integrity in what you present, but you don't faithfully present the gospel that God has given us, then you don't have a God-honouring ministry either. And it's sad and be a time that sometimes... People, even well-intentioned people who think the gospel is really, really important. I desire people to come to know Jesus who feel the need to change maybe the message in order to try and reach these people. Maybe it's a subtle thing. Maybe they think, maybe we just won't talk about sin. Sin's not real popular. Maybe we won't talk about the fact that by nature we are under God's judgment and we actually need a saviour. Maybe we won't talk about repentance, that it's actually going to require a change of how we live. Maybe we won't talk about it actually being a life commitment, defining who we are. But I'd ask the question, why would we be ashamed of any aspect of God's good news? If God says, this is my gospel, this is my good news, why would we, as his people, be ashamed of any aspect of it? As you know, we signed a contract on a house at Westbrook yesterday and we've been looking at real estate for quite some time. If you've ever done it, even if you've just done it because it's fun, you'll notice that what you see in pictures and descriptions might be very different than what you'd get when you go to look at a house. Because of the great lack of rain, the most common one at the moment is to see some really, really green grass in photos and then really dead grass when you get there. Or you might have a really wide-angle lens which makes all the rooms look bigger than what they are. And this one, which I've only just learned is a possibility, is that often in photos, they'll actually Photoshop furniture in there. And because that's a digital image, they may not actually be to scale as to how they would fit into the room if they were the real, actual pieces of furniture. And why do you think they do those things? Because they think it's going to improve your perception of the building going to make it more appealing so if you alter god's gospel what are you saying you are saying that 
there's something wrong with it. It needs to be improved. It's not appealing enough. Somehow we think that we've got a better gospel than God's one. Really? You want people to trust their lives to God, yet you're presenting to them a gospel that says that you don't trust part of the things that God has given us. You're not really giving them a sense of there being a God who can trust, nor are you honouring God. A God-approved ministry uses God's given message and his resources. God alone has the power to bring salvation through his gospel, which is a wonderful relief because we often put a lot of pressure upon ourselves. So we don't need to think about how do we coerce someone into the, into the kingdom. There's no room for manipulating, for deceiving people. Because when you start leaning upon, what do I need to do to convince someone or to persuade them in, you start to take upon yourself the weight of what only God can do. Which is good for us who are really um, self-conscious about our own abilities. But we don't need Christians or people calling themselves Christians who have been persuaded into into believing they're Christians by a gospel salesman. We need Christians who know beyond doubt that they have been saved by God because God has called them and that God has saved them. So the appeal of the mission must be through God's gospel, not altered and not through manipulation. So we've dealt with content, substance, and the nature of the appeal. Now the motive, a godly approach. Now it's possible to do all of those things we've spoken about but have a motive or an agenda that's not godly. For example, you may find a pastor of a flourishing church who gets mistaken and starts to take credit for the growth that's going on in his church. Maybe they're loving, wanting to see their church growth because they want people to respect them and think highly of them. They'd be equally wrong if they desire to see a church grow because they're thinking, I've got an end where I've got a budget I want to meet, I want to build a new building. Or I, thought, or I need to build a bigger church so I've got an electrician, a plumber, a builder and all these things so I can get them to do stuff for me for free. Which pastors don't do that for the, for the record. Well, this one doesn't. Again, he makes that contrast what he doesn't do as well as what he does do. Not using words of flattery, where you compliment people and to try to manipulate them to your own selfish, selfish ends. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, we renounce underhanded cunning ways. But all of these things that he's defending against, these were common things that some of the philosophers that were travelling through the towns in those days, they were doing. And so their opponents are trying to lump Paul and Silas into the same categories. But if someone's trying to manipulate people with flattery, most astute people can figure that out. They can see it a mile off. But sometimes things like greed aren't so obvious because they're a heart issue. And so not surprisingly, Paul calls upon God to be his witness, that there was no selfish greed, no selfish glory being pursued there. Which in one way seems like a a silly claim to even need to make. If you've been stripped and flogged in public... And you're getting persecuted here, 
there's not really too much motivating to say that, oh, I'm doing this for glory. But even though they were apostles, he says, we didn't throw our weight around. We could have, but we didn't. We were gentle amongst you, like a nursing mother. All of the claims that seem to be said against them ultimately boil down to saying, you guys had a selfish agenda. You were doing it for your gain. And Paul just says, wait up for yourself. You know what we were like amongst you. I'm allowing God to be my witness who searches even the depths of my heart that even you can't see. And lastly, he speaks of a servant-hearted ministry. Now those who did the discipleship training school thing that we did, we talked about heart values that were necessary to be a disciple maker. And the first two were, you must have a love for God. If you don't have a love for God, you're not going to be motivated to serve him in any way. And if you don't have a genuine love for people, you will never take the time to invest in them. The things that you value, you will happily give time to, you will happily give effort to. And Paul speaks about his ministry this way in verse 8. So being affectionately desirous of you, I love ESV wording, affectionately desirous husbands, use that one to your wife's in a letter of one time. Being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Paul hadn't just shared a gospel message and nicked off. Paul shared his life. He realised the Christian life was lived in community. It's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus didn't just stand off and have certain events where he said certain things. He invested in people. So as we look at these verses, they provide a wonderful defence for Paul's ministry to the Thessalonians. But more than that, it provides an example to the Thessalonians for how they are to conduct their ministry. Things not to do, things to do. And by implication, lay out things for us as how we should live. Things we should do, things we shouldn't do to faithfully serve God in ministry. I've brought it down to four things. First is, without the central heartbeat of God's mission, that is his gospel, you don't have mission. Without the central heartbeat of God's mission, which is the gospel, there is no mission. There is no ministry. As Christians, the gospel shapes our whole identity. It makes no sense for the gospel to have no bearing in any area of our life. Secondly, the gospel is God's gospel. Our job is to present it faithfully and with integrity. God's gospel still is the power of God for salvation. He saves people by his power. We neither need to improve the gospel nor to make it more appealing or manipulate people to bring about transformation. The motive of ministry must always be a love for God and a love for others, never to be self-seeking. And lastly, ministry is not just sharing a message. Ministry is about sharing our lives. There's always going to be people looking to defame Christian ministry. And unfortunately there will always be some Christian leaders who give them the fuel, they're exactly what they're looking for. None of us are perfect. And because we're not perfect, 
Sometimes it's really helpful to have guidelines like this to remind us that when we start to think about doing something, it's like, oh yeah, that belongs to my old nature. Paul, Paul's helped us to learn from that mistake. Let's not go down that way. Let's make sure we faithfully proclaim the gospel which God has handed down and given to us. And I want us, as a church and as individuals, to be known as a gospel people and a gospel people who have integrity. People might not like it. People might oppose it. People might say, you've turned the world upside down. And you know what? I'm okay with that. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you that churches around the world exist because your gospel is the power of God for salvation and it is still drawing people to you. It is still transforming lives and turning the worlds upside down. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be a people who are confident not only in your message, but in your power to transform a people by your gospel. Lord, we thank you for the work that you had done in the Thessalonian church. We thank you for the work that you've done in our church. Lord, we pray and we plead with you uh, that you would be pleased to see many people in Toowoomba and surrounds to come to know you as your gospel is proclaimed. For it to be proclaimed faithfully, without manipulation, and for all glory and thanks to be directed towards you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.